0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host.
2: Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT thriller.
3: You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver,
0: and Al Warren. Third on KCB
4: 106.5 FM Los
0: Angeles,
1: 102.3 FM
2: Riverside,
3: and 1050 AM Palm Springs
5: throw me a freaking bone here. I'm the boss. Need the info. Uh, Hank Shravel. Thank you for being here. Thank
2: you for having me.
5: <laughs> and um so you you've got quite the history uh before you got into writing. So you were you were with um, especially at the Air Force and and uh you know how did you get into um the whole military thing and, 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 that part of your life.
2: Well, uh, I needed a job. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> when I was in college, I was majoring in political science and, uh, that interested me. And I realized, uh, early on that there was not a whole lot of opportunity in the private sector for political scientists, uh, but it did seem a uh, a good pre-law major, which is something I definitely had been thinking of, but uh, didn't have a whole lot of money. So I thought, you know, I probably should uh, work a little bit and uh, try to get my uh, legs under me financially. Uh, and the military looked like a good opportunity to get some training and some you know, credibility and some experience and some money and uh, possibly take advantage of some uh, education programs they had uh, I went in to ROTC you know an ROTC scholarship and uh then uh went in the military and then I went to law school after I did a few years in the military
5: yeah but with you know so you, you, it sounds like you've had quite the career in that it was pretty interesting it's, it was
2: interesting yes it was interesting
5: wh- wh- why did you leave it like as in now you're you're kind of venturing into writing and you've done well I mean I see guess you're first novel, you did win the Bram Stoker Award for Best First Novel. I, I so, did. So, yes. so you, you've jumped into this, and, and you've done more since, and you've got more coming. But what initiated that change or got you to do actually at that first book?
2: Well, uh, you know, I always really had a strong interest in writing. Uh, I did not have a strong interest in being a starving artist, though. And so uh, while it was always something that uh, I had as a goal, you know, in, in the uh, in the fore of my mind, it was not something I really thought I could pursue until I was in a better position. Because uh, when I said I didn't have much money, I mean I didn't have any money. <laughs> so uh, I uh, I was uh, the first person in my family to go to college. You know, and I uh, uh, I was just trying to get a foothold and getting out of uh, you know the kind of environment I grew up in, which I don't want to pretend was too oppressive, but it was you know very lower middle class and uh you didn't have a lot of uh a lot of uh, things other people you know, growing up in slightly more established households would uh would take for granted and uh i wanted to kind of escape that a little bit if that's not too strong a word and uh like i said i was the first person in my family to go to college i wanted to you know have some sort of a career establish myself a little bit and uh always though throughout this i uh i thought eventually I would take a shot at writing because it was something that really interested me. Um, But like I said, uh, the pay for a writer just starting out (laughs) was not that attractive. Uh, So I had kind of an idea that, well, you know, if I do interesting things, you know, it was really old school, even though I didn't know it. If I just do interesting things, I'll have interesting things and perspectives to write about. And that's the way it used to be. That's the way, you know, writers in the early 20th century really, uh, were, were, uh, created, uh, was through living interesting lives. It was only toward the 50s and 60s that there was a transition toward, um, college education for writers, uh, and more and more English majors and literature majors, creative writing majors, were being produced as writers, and they started gradually supplanting those who, uh, you know, came from the school of hard knocks. Uh, which you can kind of trace it if you look through the the way uh, literature evolved in the twentieth century, where it went much more into an imagist school and uh, much uh, much less based upon uh, you know individual. Adventures uh, in, in exotic places, and much more introspective. Um, and then there's been a resurgence, you know, of thrillers uh, later on. I think because people realize they they really like those thrillers. So it's kind of been a blend somewhat. But uh, I, the whole time, thought, well, you know, I got to have something interesting to write about. And frankly, at the time, I didn't think I had a whole lot in my life as a you know 18, 19 year old college kid to where I could speak with any authority, <laughs> you know, about anything. So I thought, this is a good way. I'll go to the military. I'll learn about the military. I'll learn about, uh you know, was an OSI agent. I'll learn about law enforcement. Um And uh, then I went to law school and I thought, well, this is great. I'll learn, you know, about how uh, things really go. Because this was around the time that uh, a few years after John Grisham had exploded, you know, with the legal thriller. Um Before that you had Perry Mason. Those were more, courtroom dramas, but, um, you know, uh, Grisham came out with uh, the firm, and that was a big, big, big hit, and uh, that was a legal thriller, which had the law as kind of a setting, you know, and uh, that probably influenced me a lot, thinking that law school would be a really good uh, springboard for giving me some kind of street cred (laughs) when it came to uh, trying to sell something, but then one day I woke up, I was in my 30s and I was like, you know, I ain't getting younger. <laughs> I'm going to have to start <laughs> writing here. I can't just keep saying someday, someday, someday uh or it's I'm going to going to uh swerve right by it, miss it. So I started uh, you know started then uh trying my hand at it. And, um and uh, you know it took a few years to uh kind of find my find my way, but uh it was probably a quicker path than some people, um, or most people I would even venture. Uh, but I got to where I was, uh, published. I was very fortunate. I sold my first novel to a major publishing house and it, as a horror novel, that is kind of unheard of, at least at the time it was very unusual. So, um, uh, I've had a, a few good turn of events here and, uh, you know, I hope to, uh, continue, continue on and, uh, do a lot better uh, get a lot bigger audience but uh, but I've had a pretty good uh, run so far
4: well I'm wondering also how how you took all those interesting things that you've done in your life and uh, you, you know weave them into your fiction I know you also play guitar and you I, I believe you have a short story about uh, blues and uh, just wondering you know how how you would uh, how you have weaved you know, these
2: these things into well, through your fiction short and, and long. Yeah, it's not it's not hard. It's not hard uh, it, it, because whatever you're familiar with, you have experience with, and even more importantly, what interests you, hmm. there are always angles to find. The The story you're referring to uh, in the upcoming collection, Moonless Nocturne, um, yes. is called Shifty Devil Blues. And that was based, uh, or that was inspired just by... Uh, what I found is very interesting, and that is the uh, enduring uh, mythos surrounding Robert Johnson. And for your mm. listeners who, who don't, aren't familiar with Robert Johnson, he was an extremely influential blues guitarist, died very young, uh, and not much was known about him. Just enough was known about him to uh, build up the legend. And that was that he was a, uh, he was a, I wanted to play guitar, young black man in in Mississippi, apparently was no good. He disappeared for a couple of years, showed up again and suddenly he was phenomenal and Mm -hmm. he never would tell anybody exactly how, but his songs hinted, many of his songs hinted that he had cut a deal with the devil. And, uh, so it, you know, then he died relatively young and, uh, that really captured the imagination of a lot of people out there, and, and especially because he was so influential with a lot of his early blues playing. Um, so uh, I was familiar with that story, as most most guitar players are, and uh, just coming across little uh, things about him one day, uh, just had a little something click in my mind about a bit of a homage. You know to him uh something that uh, touches base with his uh his myth but also something a little different so it's not hard to find something uh that will intersect with uh, you know the areas of your, of expertise or interest or hobbies uh you just gotta keep your eyes open for them and they'll just they'll pop up out there
5: well to me you um you're writing um horror right. Dark, yes, dark sort of horror, and so. And you say, um, that you wanted to lead an interesting life, so you're doing all of these things so that you could have something to write about or an influence in your writing. So, how did it? Become horror from legal <laughs> legal drama and stuff. Are, you, like, are, are That's you, a that, that is, is, is an, something we don't talk about. Or is this no, that's a very
2: good question. I would not say I dreaded that question, but it's a it's a very good one because that's not what I had in mind at the time. I always have been a fan of horror since I was a little kid. I was a big fan of horror, and uh, I was certainly not opposed to writing horror at all. But I did not really set out when I was planning or thinking or dreaming of these things about being a horror author. I really wasn't thinking that way. But then when I started writing, when I sat down and said, look, I got to actually do this. I can't just dabble once in a while, you know, for as a hobby on my own. I got to actually start trying to do something here with this. Everything, when I'd sit down and try to write a story, everything kept coming back to a horror story. I just couldn't seem to escape it. That's where my imagination went. Everything seemed more interesting. Everything seemed more intriguing. Now, here's the strange thing. I don't read nearly as much horror as people would probably think I do. Now, I'm not opposed to reading horror, and I certainly do read my share of it, but most of what I read are what you would consider mainstream commercial thrillers, mysteries, noir, crime fiction. That's most of what I read with a very healthy dose you know, peppering of horror in there. Uh, But I'm not somebody who just lives and breathes horror all the time. But when I sit down to write, while I certainly like to think I can write a good, solid mystery, a good, solid police procedural or thriller, and I certainly am doing one right now. I'm under contract for one. Um, And I, I enjoy them. My creative inclinations always seem to look behind the veil a little bit. You know, to look what is going on on the other side of, uh, you know, of of that uh, veneer of reality there. Um, Or if it's even not supernatural in any way, uh, to more of a really twisted, you know, kind of uh, motivation for a character. uh, I just can't totally escape it. Now, I'm more than capable of writing a story or two here or there or a novel even – in probably a series of novels, but I'll never probably be able to just jettison horror. I, I just can't see myself doing that because uh, it interests me too much to explore the dark side of things in an extreme kind of way. You know, here's here's a, a, a counterintuitive uh, point uh, that I would argue. You know, horror fiction gives me an ability to not have to worry about suspending disbelief of the reader as much, which is, like I said, very counterintuitive. And the reason is once they're sitting down and reading a horror novel, they're already accepting a certain level of suspension of disbelief. So I've already got the reader to a point where I am not having to worry about selling something quite as hard as I might have to in a, a more real world type of setting or a or less fantastic type of setting. So I find that gives me a lot more freedom to, to kind of have my characters follow uh, you know, whatever kind of path I think is the most interesting. Uh, so that is very uh, I would say intoxicating, but it's certainly, um, it's certainly inspiring or encouraging to me when I'm writing that you know, I've got an audience that is ready, willing, and able to go here because of the genre I'm in, uh, whereas I might be facing a much more skeptical uh, audience uh, if I'm keeping it more grounded into a, a mainstream you know, piece of fiction, which you know, I'm not opposed to. Most of my reading, like I said, you know, involves that. But I just love that creative freedom uh, and, and the challenge of, of, of uh, indulging that at the same time, I'm also trying to follow the real world rules and uh make it seem you know plausible credible believable and make the characters seem real so uh that that challenge uh, and that fusion uh you know that's something that I really uh, really enjoy
4: well speaking of horror I was just wondering how you found your way into the horror community I know I originally uh, found uh, the old Shock lines message board and then started to go to 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 some some conventions and stuff like that I just wondered how uh, that worked for you?
2: Yeah, uh, uh, that's a good question, too, because uh, I realized that, you know, I just didn't know anything about the publishing industry. And that's something writers Mm -hmm. really need to do when they're starting out, is learn a little bit about the publishing industry. You don't have to learn the ins and outs of the business itself right away. But you do need to kind of understand how it operates, certainly when it comes to the genre you're interested in. Uh, Genre... Writers can be uh, very clickish. You know, they can be very mm. uh, insular. Uh, they're usually yeah. extremely, <laughs> extremely nice. You know, uh, they yeah. can be very nice. They can also be, you know, very. Uh, uh, I, I, I don't want to use any adjectives. They can be uh, very exclusive. They can be snobbish. You know, um, but it helps to get to know, uh, a, you know, at least a few people in the genre. Uh, and get to see what it is that, um, you know, that's acceptable and what is, uh, what is a way of doing things. Where do they submit their stories? You know, where, do, where are they getting published? You know, how do they build their readership? How do they, you know, how have they gone about establishing themselves as authors? And that's what I did. I went to, uh, you know, a, a Horror Writers Association convention. Uh, <laughs> how I ended up going to an HWA convention, it's been, I, I am really sad to admit, so many years I don't remember exactly how I got uh got into that like how I found it or anything I think somebody who I was poking around probably uh on a bulletin board like you were talking about yeah mentioned it recommended it and uh so I ended up just finding it online signing up and going to it it was in New York and that was uh you know a while ago uh It was probably over fifteen years ago now, Um, and uh, you know, people were nice. Uh, the uh, the The community you could tell was somewhat small, somewhat Mm -hmm. tight knit, not tiny, wasn't really tiny, but you could tell almost everybody knew everybody. You could tell that, and uh, so I just got to meet some people, um, and uh, you kind of got a feel for it. You know, feel, find out who's who, who, you know, where are these people submitting? You know, there are publishers there, editors there, uh, you know, and obviously a slew of writers, uh, and you just start absorbing stuff. And that's what I did. And I started, uh, submitting some stories there. I was, I've been very fortunate. I, I didn't really have to go through a crucible, you know, of, uh, of rejections for years, things like that. Uh, I had one story I submitted and it was, uh, I got a very kind rejection. I think it was from Cemetery Dance. And then my next story that I submitted was accepted to um, a, an anthology that was with a major publishing house. So I was very wow. fortunate there. Um, now I had had some other stories I'd written in the meantime, and I just never submitted anywhere. It was more like, uh, you know, an exercise in trying to develop my writing. But, um, so I was writing and I started writing more and more uh, and I, when I got accepted uh, into that anthology, I thought, well, now at least I have a publishing uh, credential. Then I got more proactive. And uh, I started contacting writers that I had met. At, I think I'd gone to maybe two, two conventions by then. It had been a couple of years uh, from the first one. I started um, contacting some writers and started uh, suggesting projects. You know that I, you know I'd really like to get involved in a project. You know, and I have an idea for a project, kind of thing. And uh, I got a very good reception. And so I ended up uh, doing a project with several other authors. And uh, you know that got me some more uh, uh, interaction. You know, with with uh, authors and uh, and other writers and and people. And, uh, you know, from there, I just kind of built, a uh, just a, a minimal network of people and, uh, and the knowledge of the, of the genre to where I was able to find an agent. And, uh, I had a novel I started working on, uh, and I gave him, uh, sample chapters. I met an agent at one of these, uh, that was, I was introduced to, and he, uh, he really liked it. So, uh, He took me on and I finished the novel and we sold it to Penguin. And so really that's kind of what happened. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe it's not the perfect path for everyone to take, but what you can take away from this is uh, you got to go out and kind of meet people. You're, you're going to be behind the eight ball a little bit. If you don't uh, Mm. get to know people uh, and listen to their stories, listen to their, their paths and, um, Keep your finger, put your finger a little bit on some of the pulse of what's going on uh, so that you know you know what markets are out there, where to find markets, you know uh, you know how you go about submitting. Uh, there's a lot of disinformation if you just go cold on the internet and read blogs and things uh, or misinformation, I should say they're mm. not intentionally doing it. but uh, yeah. there's a lot of things that that are semi true or they just don't tell the whole story uh, or they might even be some bad advice. So you've gotta. If you go to a convention, you probably don't know this, David, you talk to 10 mm. writers, you probably get three or four different takes on the same question, you know, at least Absolutely. if not 10, yep. if not 10. Right. So, um, so what you've got to do is pick and choose and glean from it. You know, what is useful? Uh, what is a useful bit of information from what they're telling you? Or, you know, what is it? What is some useful advice there? And then you kind of forge your own, uh, own uh, perspective on it. And, uh, you know, employ that when you're uh, trying to you know, get your your work placed. well look i have to though say everything is different now because uh, kindle came out and you know with self-publishing now the entire uh attitude of uh well, not attitude might not be the right word the entire the entire uh um value system <laughs> you know that, that was uh, <laughs> that was in a in a convention just changed because now when you go to them the majority of people there are going to be self-published mm-hmm. if you when I first went to a convention if you had said you were self-published I, I'm sure you know they would have just turned their nose up at you and, and yep. moved gone to a different conversation I, mean, I didn't uh, but that's Gone. Okay, that's over. <laughs> those <laughs> days are gone now. And when and here's what's a little interesting. When I first went to those conventions, I can remember so many people. When I you know meet them, greet them, you know just uh, say hi in these little mixers or something. First thing they would ask after they learn my name is, "Oh, so you're published? Are you published? Where are you published?" You know, that, that's the first yeah. question. Within three years of you know of that, nobody asked that question. Nobody, wow. literally nobody. That's how quickly it changed. So, uh, yes, that the, the landscape has changed considerably since then. But there are still fundamentals uh, that apply. And one of those is you got to get out there and and meet people so you can gl- gather information uh, and form, uh, you know, an understanding of how the business works and how you can fit in.
4: Networking is everything
2: be, yes, well, definitely.
5: Yeah. Well, and I, I have a feeling because you write such dark books, you have to get your material from somewhere. So probably a lot of these people you meet disappear.
2: <laughs> but I, you know, I'm just suggesting this happens.
5: I'm not saying you did anything. I, I, you know, if that's happened, I'm, it's just a coincidence. Well, because I, because I see you as you're. Yeah and and it's like not like unlike myself because i see there's a lot of writers that will take from their own experiences and you are looking for experiences so that you have something to write about or to build off your writing so you're putting a lot of yourself into each
2: of your books
5: that that that's just a given i would imagine
2: well i think every writer does that yeah but the, but the way you put yourself in a book is probably not the way uh, a layman would Interpret that to me. Uh, the way I put myself into my books uh, would be through a very intense, immersive uh, exercise of imagining myself in the shoes of a particular type of character. And that means shedding a lot of your own identity, your a lot of your own ego. And I don't mean that in the sense of conceit. I mean that in the psychological sense. It, shedding it as best we can to really empathize and identify with the character to where, you know, what would this person do? And the way I try to figure that out is what would I do if I were that person? And contrary to what, you know, a lot of people might think, I don't think people are all that different. You know, I don't think different races and different genders, uh, different orientations, I don't think we're all that different. We have a lot of superficial differences. We may even have a lot of, of deep value differences and worldview differences, but we're still human beings who function in certain ways. And if you can just adopt the worldview that you are would, uh, would attribute to your character, if you can adopt the identity, I think we can do a very good job of making a compelling approximation of those kinds of characters who are far different, you know, than, than the author, uh, you know, we're not writing uh, s- symbolic representations of groups here, we're writing characters, we're writing people, individuals, and there are certain universals that apply to individuals, and in their motivations, you know, in their weaknesses, in their foibles, um, and then it just becomes a matter of, of how that uh, the character manifests itself through the traits that, you know, might be identified or through the, the, um, I shouldn't say traits, through the, uh, uh, through the lens of the identity of, of the person or the, the lifestyle of the person, or the, uh, the gender of the person, things like that. Um, you know, obviously there are differences between men and women, but they're, we're all still people who with functioning brains who have certain, tendencies to rationalize, we have certain uh, uh value systems that are almost universal, if not completely universal. We have certain uh fears, um and uh we have certain ways of going about, you know uh, achieving goals. And so we take these things that are common and then I you, you you start with that is the way I do it. And then you try to to uh try to uh, employ your understanding of, of the differences between you and that person in, in determining how this character would act in a given situation or speak or what their motivations would be or, or their goals or uh, how they would go about doing something. So it's an exercise in just, uh, you know, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes to, to put it, uh, you know, superficially. Uh, but that's how my, writing, you know, puts me into it. It's not that, you know, I'm this character and I'm this character. There are very few, very few characters uh, I write that I would say, well, yeah, that's, that's the way I'd look at it or how I would act. It's instead, that's the way I'd look at it. That's how I would act if I were that person, which is different.
5: So if we were to to come to your place when you were writing, you'd be dressed up like one of your characters. and. You know, <laughs> you know. no, no, I'm not a method writer. Okay. I'm not okay. a method writer. So I just wanted to make sure that, you know, we can find you in like some dress and doing all this weird stuff on a bed somewhere and, you know. Stabbed. You know, <laughs> not that not I'll get to. You, no. and you'd never catch it. Oh no. <laughs> no, no, you'll see it on the street. No, but isn't there a certain amount of um, when you share your feelings, but isn't that um, a vulnerability that you kind of expose yourself by doing that? And that when you put the book out there, then...
2: Uh, oh, yeah.
5: You know, so you kind of have to... Uh, you know, sit and wait and
2: see how people respond. Oh, absolutely. Look, look up, we, you know. we writers are the neediest people out there. Okay. We, uh, no matter who the writer is, there are two types. There are one who will agree with me and liars. Okay. And David, you can vouch for me here. We are needy people. Okay. We put mm. this thing out there. We want certainly to entertain. Yep. Okay. We, we do, we want to perhaps, you know, uh, make a point or, or, uh, or, uh, Or um, uh, kind of create a world. We wanna do those things, but more than anything else, we want people to like our product, our, our art. We want to impress people with our story, with our storytelling, because if we do our job, they'll be impressed. If we do it right, they'll be impressed. So it's not just out of ego or conceit, even though that's a huge part of a writer, let's be honest. Uh, but it's because we know then we've done a good job and we want so much to know that we've done a good job because really, why else would we spend all this time sitting, you know, in front of a laptop or in front of a PC or, you know, in the old days at a typewriter, pouring ourselves out like this, you know, for money, it's not, you know, very few writers make the kind of money that would justify spending you know so much of your life that way now it's much it's much more uh primal than that it's the need to have somebody see some side of you that is not apparent some side that you don't show that you don't live some side that you're uh, you're pouring into a creation here and for them to approve of it to approve of it and you can have that sense of accomplishment that you did it you accomplished you did what you set out to do and you did it well. So we're really really needy people. I I think it was Dorothy Parker who said oh writing's easy. You just sit down in front of a typewriter and open a vein. Mm. You know and uh, that's true. You know, it's true because you really do pour part of yourself into it there. If nothing else, the amount of effort that uh, good writing takes is extremely daunting. Extremely. Because you have to do it continuously, repeatedly, day after day after day if you're writing a novel. Uh, And even if you're writing a short story, you have to spend a lot of time, uh, you even on a, let's say a 5,000 word short story that I I could write, you know, in a few days, uh, I spend a lot of time with that story, thinking about it, certainly writing it, rewriting it. Hmm. recrafting it, t- turning it over in my head, turning over plot points, character issues, words, sentences. It's an immersive process and you have to love it and you have to hmm. need it. And we need it. We need to do this. We need to try to make sense of the, uh, of the drive we have in ourselves to tell a story and the only way you can make sense of it is to actually tell those stories. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an exercise in vulnerability in a lot of ways because you have to have both a thick skin because uh, of you know, the, the likelihood of rejection is high. Um, but you also have to understand and recognize why you're doing it so that you can know what to expect. And that is... A lot of, uh, uncertainty and, uh, and <laughs> doubt. And, uh, you know, I, I never, ever think.
3: to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers.
2: sometimes I think a story I wrote is good. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes. But a lot of times, I have no idea. And it tends to be the ones where I have no idea that people are the most complimentary of. Uh, so it, it's a very strange avocation, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> but yes, you, it's, it's, we're needy people. I mean, David's uh, David's being conspicuously quiet here. He may not want to.
4: <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. It's true. You bleed on the page and uh, you put it out there and it, it can be scary at times. <laughs>
2: and, and the reason I'm, I'm stressing that, that we're needy people, is so that other writers, maybe new writers or aspiring writers out there, uh, will understand that it's okay to be needy. And also, if you recognize it, you can kind of control it. Yeah. So, you know, you can, uh, you can. Uh, restrain it a little bit so that you're not a pain in the arse, you know, to, to your beta readers or your editors, you know, where you're constantly uh, fishing for validation. <laughs> you, know, so you, you just understand, <laughs> look, this is natural that I feel this way. It's natural that I have these anxieties over my writing. Mm-hmm. And that makes it easier. Once you understand that, that it's a normal part of the process, uh, y- you can deal with it a lot more easily, a lot more readily. You become a uh, you still have that need, but you don't really need to slake it. You know, you can just, just let it be there.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Now I wanted to go back, you know, we were talking about point of view and we are talking about going into the shoes of your character. I I just thought it was uh, really interesting that you have a story in moonless nocturne that's going to be coming out called household where you take, you take the point of view of the house. And you step and into the the view of the house. I just thought it was a you know, fascinating take on
2: a uh, I, I, story. I will confess that I am very proud of that story, and I'll tell you yeah. what: yeah. the reason I'm proud of that story, beyond hopefully you find it well written, mm-hmm. hopefully you find it very entertaining and exciting, scary, you know, mm-hmm. a uh, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, kinetic, you know, moving you along reading. I hope it does everything a story should do, but. The thing that I'm most proud of is I think that I came up with a pretty original premise for a story. Mm, absolutely, uh, and, and if not in the uh, in the concept, then in the presentation of it. Because uh, for your listeners out there, uh, uh, Household is a, a haunted house story, basically told from the point of view of the house, and that's exactly how I sat down to write it. I sat down to write a haunted house story from the point of view of the house. And that, you know, presented some challenges, but I was so intrigued uh, or, or inspired by that idea that I was, uh, I was able to, uh, to put a lot of, uh, of creative energy into uh, figuring out how to do that. And uh, so, yeah, I like, I like the, the end result of that story. And, uh, That was one of the ones that I thought, this is a good story. And I got some, you know, my early readers were like, really impressed, you know, my first reader, my wife, she's like, that's the best story you've ever written, you know, and uh, uh, I've gotten very good response from that story. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's the kind of reception that I was hoping for. Uh, I think it, I think it, I hit the mark with it. So, how to your, your question, I think, went to, you know, how do you do something when you're trying to identify with the character? How do you identify with a house? You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, well, I don't want to do any spoilers in the story. But the way I, I, I the way I identified with the house was uh, the idea that a house uh, takes its energy from its occupants and kind of ref- mm-hmm. and, and it, it kind of gives it, uh, you know, brings a personality into being. You know, is the idea. Yeah. So um, it was the same kind of exercise. Just, okay, if I were a house <laughs> and I, <had> a, <laughs> I was conscious, you know, I was sentient somehow as a house, and I drew my energy and my ability to think through the, through the, uh, the energy I feed off of from the occupants, what would that be like? And that's really how I, uh, how I approached it. Uh, very you interesting. Know, if you, if you went to, i don't want like i said i don't want to go into any spoilers, but I think that uh after readers uh, finish that story they will see exactly you know how i uh, formulated it in my head
5: well, you certainly sound mentally healthy so <laughs> 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 not a problem where do, so where where do you create where like where do the stories come from like uh you know
2: that's a that's a question I've been asked. So many times, and it's, you know, at first, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess another thing. I was very dismissive of that question when I was uh, starting out writing. When I first got published and I was first doing interviews, um, I, was, uh, I was a bit snobby about when it came to that question. I have to admit, it. and I was wrong in being so, because what I realized over the years was that uh, that's a sincere question. OK, that's not the throwaway question I used to think it was. That's a sincere question, because a lot of people don't know. And I kind of assumed everybody knew, and they're throwing it out there for me to just talk about it. And I guess and that, that's where I was wrong. And so I'm glad you asked it, to be honest, because um, it, there's a guy I know named Fred, and I pay him 100 bucks per idea. And that's where he gives me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's, what um, I,
5: that's what I was going to say. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no. uh Idea okay, <laughs> And, and here, here's the answer to that question. Uh, it is, it is not inspiration as much as, it, as it's perspiration, okay? Um, it's a process, and if you can hone your process, if you can kind of come up first with the process and then refine it, you're not going to have a problem coming up with story ideas. Uh, if you wait for lightning bolts of inspiration. Uh, If you wait for a muse to come and visit you, you're going to do a lot of waiting. That's just not the way it works. Not for me. Maybe for some people, I can't completely, um, completely dismiss that possibility, but I doubt it. I think what it is, is a a writer who seems to have a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, imaginative juices flowing all the time. What they're really doing is they understand how their brain creates these things and they just employ the process that, that, that brain, their brain needs to do it. So, okay. I'm talking, you know, in descriptive terms instead of explaining what that process is. Well, the process is usually something like this. I find something, a kernel of something interesting, something that that could capture my imagination. It could be a setting. It could be a plot point or a twist. It could be a character, which is usually what it is, or it, it can be a situation. And once I have something, I think, wouldn't that be interesting? And the, the way you do that is like, you, when something captures your eye or you hear something and it perks your attention real quick, you think, what if X, Y, and Z? And from there, I take what would be the basis for a useful premise for a story uh this is how i think of it a useful premise is and i twist and tease and uh start looking at it from different directions like a sort of like a necker cube if people know what a necker cube is it's that that uh that pencil drawing of a cube that looks like it's facing one way and until you look at it slightly differently and suddenly you realize it's facing the other way um I kind of try to do that with uh, a premise and look at it from different directions to see what could I do with this that's a little different and start asking lots of questions. Well, what if this? What if that? A lot of it's trial and error. But once I got in my head uh, a decent you know a decent grasp of, what, of that, what that premise or how I'd like to use that premise – doesn't not a complete story by any means not even a complete plot just a decent grasp of it. I'll sit down and I'll try to write the scene a scene to start. I almost always almost not there's very few times I could say always but almost always I sit down and write the first opening paragraph, or the first opening scene without really having much of any idea where the story is going to go and I take that opening paragraph or opening scene, opening description, And I use that now to build a story around. I sit back and I think, okay, where does this story want to go from here? And then I try to plot it out. One of the beauties of short fiction, one of the beauties of short stories is you are much freer to write organically uh, than with a novel. Hmm. I have to take a different approach with a novel. Uh, A novel needs to be plotted out because it is a long exercise in uh, discipline. And if you write by the seat of your pants, so to speak, uh, it's going to meander and wander. And I can tell when a writer does that. When I'm reading a novel, I can tell, and I'm very confident I'm pretty much always going to be correct whether or not they outlined it all or whether or not they just pantsed it. I can tell because of the way it travels from scene to scene. It doesn't have much direction. And then suddenly it'll realize two-thirds, three-quarters, four-fifths of the way through where it (laughs) wants to go. And then it'll just suddenly take off toward that spot. Um, I am not the kind who could sit down and outline an entire story very well. I just feel too constricted, too constrained. And I would spend way too much time uh, altering the outline, you know, as opposed to just writing the story. But I do, when I'm writing a novel, need to come up with a, a plot line and what I would call milestones, which if you think of it like a map, if you're driving from, you know, we'll say to, from, uh, you know, Florida to California, you know, the direction you're going, you know, your destination. You don't know every single highway you're going to take, you know, every exit you're going to take. You You just know, OK, I'm going to go from Florida here. I'm going to. Reach, uh, New Orleans, then I'm going to go through Dallas. I'm going to go through, uh, Phoenix, maybe, and then I'm going to end up in LA. So those, you know, you have these milestones along the way. So you know, the general direction you're heading, but you haven't restricted yourself to a certain, uh, you know, set of streets or highways. Uh, you're free to kind of just head in that direction. And that's the way I kind of handle it. So I know where I'm going. I just don't necessarily know the routes, each, each of the routes I'm going to take to get there. With a short story, though, a short story, the beauty of it is it lets you indulge in some more organic writing, which I think most writers really prefer. Most writers, if they had their druthers, they would just write organically. That's where you just sit down and write whatever comes into your head. problem is sitting down and writing whatever comes into your head is not a very effective way to be a good writer. Uh, But with a short story, you can come closer to that. You can approximate that. I would say it's probably not wise to just write organically as a pure, you know, matter. You, you don't want to be just somebody who sits there and pants it. but you have that light at the end of the tunnel from the moment you write the first word, really, you know, in a lot of ways, you have a set manageable distance to travel here. And uh, so it lets me not have to worry about, ripple effects and consequences as much as I do with a novel so I feel a lot more organic when I'm writing it now I still pretty much know where the story's going to go like I said I'll write the opening paragraph or an opening scene just so I can really feel the character so I can get a sense of the characters and who they are and then I can get a more concrete idea of what this story is going to do or what I want to do with it and where it's going to go. And then I can write the rest of it, but I don't really need an outline to do that with a short story.
5: You're missing whereabouts you took the drugs. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the oh, I thought everybody knew that. Well, yeah, but I was
5: like, like what part of the process do you, do you take the drugs in? That's oh, I,
2: I, <laughs> I think it'd be easier to say what part of the process don't I take the <laughs> <Yeah>. drugs. <laughs> drugs. Right. Um, <laughs> Yeah. yeah uh you know Stephen King had a very uh interesting uh uh revelation about his drug use uh, I thought what, <laughs> if you read his uh on writing he said you know he used to he he admits that you know he used to really coke out a lot and drink a lot of beer while he was doing it and uh you know he rationalized that it was because he's an artist and he's so sensitive and there's so much pressure when you're so aware of the world around you, you know, that he needs to, to do this to, to function and, and maintain his level of creativity in the face of so much, you know, uh, so much real world misery. Uh, it, it was all, and he admits it, it was all BS. It was just a way to rationalize, you know, <laughs> doing drugs. Um, and he said uh, that you don't need any of that. You don't need any of that to be creative. It's an escape from, having to actually work <laughs> instead you're just kind of have trying to have the drugs let your mind run free without having to really uh use your own brain power to do it uh and he said he doesn't have to do it anymore he never had to do it it was just easier and uh it numbed him up and you know gave him that feel-good uh high um but uh i never you know indulged in that kind of thing uh uh, I'll tell you exactly why, uh, because you know, my youth, <laughs> uh, I saw lots of kids getting busted uh, and arrested and kicked out of school and things for drugs. And I didn't have, you know, I told you I came from a very lower middle class family. Uh, neither of my parents even graduated from high school. Um, uh, well, my stepfather graduated from vocational tech, I think, after he dropped out. Uh, but uh, I didn't have anybody to rely on except myself and my brain. And I knew one, if I got in trouble and, uh, you know, with the law and had a criminal record or something, well, that wasn't going to make things easier for me. And two, if the only thing I had to rely on was my brain, I certainly did not want to screw up my brain. So, uh, I really stayed away from that stuff. That's too bad. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I know. I'm sorry if that lets people down, (laughs) makes me boring or something. uh, uh, no, now, I had other vices. But drugs weren't one of them.
4: Now, with American Nocturne, you have a fully sanctioned, licensed, however you want to state it, a Kolchak Night Stalker story. For people who don't yes. know, that's like a supernatural and science fiction show from the early 70s. Um, how, how did that all come about?
2: Yes. Well, uh, yeah, Kolchak the Night Stalker, when I was a little kid, that show probably influenced me more than anything. I was a really young kid, and that show came on uh, mid-late 70s. And, uh, it, it was, it had been a TV movie and a lot of people don't remember this, but at the time that was the high, it was called the Night Stalker. That was the highest rated TV movie ever. And it held that record for decades. I mean, it was, it was yeah. big. It was a big TV movie called the Night Stalker. And, uh, they made a sequel that was not as, uh, as watched, uh, called the Night Strangler. Uh, but then they made a series out of it, um. And the series was called Coal Shack. Who's the main character? The Night Stalker. And the main character was a a reporter who just had this knack of stumbling. He was kind of a bumbling reporter for a low-level uh, news service, uh, but he kept having this eye and ear for supernatural stuff or going on, and uh, he would always stumble across them. And I just loved that show. I mean, I absolutely loved it when I was a little kid. It just struck the right chord. It showed me the potential of horror you know, uh, to be yeah. en- so entertaining because I was already interested in, you know, the universal horror movies, you know, I loved all those things. And when this came on, I was a little kid, really little kid. I just, I was just in love with it. didn't last very long, but I never forgot that show. Uh, it kind of developed a bit of a cult following and, uh, a lot of people from my era, uh, have cited that show as an inspiration uh for for example uh Buffy the Vampire Slayer mm. uh you know uh he uh, he cites that as being an inspiration for him to come up with Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh Supernatural mm. uh, there are yep. a lot of uh X-Files. a lot of uh, TV shows X-Files definitely X-Files yep. definitely they even tried to do a crossover at some point I read and it just didn't work but um with Darren McGavin on there. If you remember, there were some X-Files episodes where Darren McGavin, who played Kolshak, for anybody that doesn't know, in the series, uh, he came on, but they instead made him a retired FBI agent. They were going to make him be Kolshak, but they couldn't work it out, uh, I guess, with the rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, which brings me to your question. How did I write a sanctioned, as you put it, you know, authorized Kolshak story? Well, uh, it's interesting. The ABC has the theatrical, owned the theatrical rights to Kulshak, uh the Night Stalker. But the author, Jeff Rice, of, of the book that it was based on, which was an unpublished novel, and his agent said, you know, this would probably make a better movie. And he sold the rights to it as a movie. And Richard Matheson, by the way, wrote the screenplay. Uh, hmm. And only later, after the movie, did, did they actually publish the novel. But he got into a lawsuit with them, apparently, uh, after... Kolshak came out, and the way it was resolved is ABC kept the theatrical rights. He kept the literary rights. So uh, there were some Kolshak things over the years. It developed kind of a cult following, you know, a, a hardcore, you know, horror. People who remembered it really loved it, and it had it's very campy. You know, it had a, had a pretty good following for a show that was such a short run. Uh, and there was a comic book that came out. Uh, that Moonstone puts, I think they may still put out, uh, Kulshak comic books. Uh, then there was a Colchak anthology I heard about. So, uh, I wrote this story to submit it to a Colchak anthology. The problem is by the time I got done writing the story, it was, it was long. It was a pretty long story. Uh, it would not qualify as a short story and they were looking for really short pieces. And so, uh, they apparently liked it a lot, but they said it's just too long. So uh, I just held on to that story. And when American Nocturne was, uh, when I was putting together American Nocturne, I made a few inquiries and calls and tracked down the author. His name was Jeff Rice. And uh, I got somebody to uh, ask him if I could have permission, you know, to, to write a Kolchak story. And uh, he graciously agreed. And I even convinced my publisher uh, to pay him an honorarium, you know, for it uh, because I didn't want to just, you know, take his his uh, intellectual property, you know, without giving mm-hmm. something for it. And the publisher was happy. They loved the story, uh, the publisher, American, original publisher American Nocturne loved it. So they said, yeah, They'll, they paid him one. And so um, they actually gave me a check to give to him. And so uh, I got his address and I mailed the check. And while the check was in the mail to him, he passed away. Mm. And so uh, it was very sad, but I eventually got the thing back in the mail, and I found out he had died. So um, I got in touch with the the person who had uh, contacted him, and he said all the rights to uh, the Kolshak Literary Estate there are going to his son. And he said, "Uh, I'll contact his son for you and uh, see what his son says. And his son said, that's fine, go ahead you know, go ahead and publish it, you know, I'm sure my father would have liked it, so, uh, we just gave him the check, son, and for, uh, letting us use it, and thanked him profusely, and, um, and then it appeared in American Nocturne, and that is a story I get lots of, lots of compliments on, people really, really appreciated having that story in there, they said, it, uh, not only for the nostalgia, uh, you know, but for the way I captured, they thought, uh, you know, the, the uh, the energy of the show and the, and the spirit of the characters and, uh, uh, which doesn't <laughs> shock me because I really was strongly influenced by that show. <laughs> so it was not a hard story to write for me. It was kind of like going home, you know, it was very familiar feeling. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it's going to be in, it's still in American Knox going to be in the re-release here coming up and uh, it's called uh, a murmur of evil. Um, and, uh, that, uh, that was, one of the most fun stories to write. I really enjoyed writing that story. And, uh, you know, I hate to sound like a downer, but writing is not often fun. It's not, and I'm not sure, David, you'd agree. It's, it's work. Oh, absolutely, it's tough. You yeah. know, it, you know uh, when I teach sometimes uh, classes at uh, conventions now, uh, you know, little writing seminars, or things like that, I always tell the students there, they're usually aspiring young writers who just try to get into it, that uh, writing is two things. It's work and it's habit. And, uh, you can't really ignore the work part. It's, it's work. Uh, it's a lot of, of rewriting and concentration and focus. Um, you got to put a lot of hours into it. Absolutely. And, uh, just to, to explain what that means about habit too. Uh, it, when I was in creative writing college, when I took a creative writing class, I remember the, uh, the instructor, his, one of the things he hit into us was that writing was work. That was his thing, writing his work. What I realized as I got into it years, years later, that is only half correct because you can work really hard. You can work your fingers to the bone, but unless you have it as a habit, you're probably not going to get where you want to go. You're probably not going to get yeah. not nearly have as much productivity. And that's because what a lot of people will do, will, they'll write on weekends or something like that, and they'll write for hours. You can only write for so long before your brain's numb, you know, and it's probably a lot shorter than people think. You, know, you write for three or four hours, uh, some people a little longer maybe, some people shorter. But you're going to start really having diminishing returns after the first, you know, couple of few hours. Uh, and people will do that. They'll write, oh, I'm going to write all day Sunday or something like that. Well, that's a lot of work. But you don't have a habit if you're doing that. The habit needs to be a daily routine and regimen. You need to live and breathe that story doesn't mean you can't go on with your normal life. doesn't mean you can't, um, you know, engage in your, your day-to-day activities. And you have to do nothing right. But it means you never can really let go of that piece you're working on completely. It's always got to be a little bit of a companion. And you definitely need to uh, take it for a walk every day. Just think of it like a pet, you know. Uh, you got to feed it and take it for a walk every day or it's going to die. So that's why I tell students uh, that writing is work and it's habit. And the work in writing is rewriting. I mean, that's the real work. Every piece of good fiction uh, you know, has to be rewritten extensively from from the first draft, I think. Uh, because the first draft, you're kind of telling the story. You're kind of creating the story. You know, you're in a way you're like telling the story. I think somebody once said you're. It's like you're the first draft. You're telling a story to yourself, and there's a lot of truth to that description. Uh, The future drafts are you're you're molding it to tell that story to other people, and that's a completely different matter. So uh, you know, it's a lot of work.
5: Yeah, well, I mean, especially when you've got a habit. <laughs> yeah. You asked for that one. Um, well, listen, um, we're, we're qu- quickly running out of time. So tell us about what you've got going on, your your newest releases and, and what we can expect from Hank.
2: Yes, uh, well, I've got um, American Nocturne, this collection was released about five years ago, is being re-released um, under... Uh, the Baskerville imprint of 25 and Y, great, great publishing house. Uh, they're, they're really treating me well. Um, and uh, that re release is coming up probably next month. It's going to be uh, released. Uh, that was a uh, nominee for a Bram Stoker Award. And uh, then uh, in October, October 1st, that's kind of a lead in to my new collection that's coming out uh, that you American Nocturne Volume 2, pretty much. Uh, it's called Moonless Nocturne uh and that is scheduled for release release october 1st um 25 and y that's going to be under uh esker and riddle the imprint uh and uh it's uh it's going to be uh you know it's going to be a will wouldn't say a big deal but they are very excited about it so it's going to be something they're they're going to be getting behind i think uh a lot um so uh, that's going to be coming out october 1st i've also got a re print of my third Jake Hatcher novel. My first two novels are still in print. They're with Penguin. Uh, the first one was Damnable. That's the one you mentioned earlier, one, the Bram Stoker. Uh, the sequel to that is Diabolical. The third in the series is The Angel of the Abyss, and that is being re-released soon uh, also from uh, Baskerville Press, although I think American Nocturne, no, correct myself. I think that was uh, that's going to be with Esker and Riddle also, but but uh, The Angel of the Abyss, I think, is going to be with Baskerville Press. And that is uh, third in the series. And I've got a contract for uh, a fourth novel in that series called The Emperor of Shadows. But before I can write that, I've got to finish the novel that I have under contract right now with them called Darwin's Laws. And that is a, I would call that a mainstream thriller. not It's not a horror novel. And uh, so I got a lot of things going on right now, you know, a lot of uh, irons in the fire, so to speak. And But the, the big one coming up right now is uh, the re-release of uh, American Nocturne, which is leading up to the October 1st release of Moonless Nocturne. Wow.
5: Um, now, um, you also have a website for people to come find you and uh, send you their love mail?
2: Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I do. It is being reconstructed right now by my publisher, um, and updated. Uh, so it, uh, hopefully will by the time, uh, people go to it, it will be up and running. Uh, but yes, it's just hankschwebel.com. And, uh, that should have, uh, you know, my covers and, uh, you know, click throughs, uh, and, uh, you know, anything people would like to know further about me or my, my stuff. Uh, but yes, com and, uh, We'll definitely have that up soon. Uh, they took it down to reconstruct it and uh, update it for these new publications coming out.
5: Yeah. we'll have that linked as well. And, and uh, to our site so people can find it with one click, you know, and uh, so it'll, it'll have your, your Tinder
2: and grinder and, phone number <laughs> I mean, that's really important nowadays you're really determined to have my worlds collide here aren't you, uh, yeah, you know it's all
5: about the fun you know you want experiences to
2: write really good books so i'm the one to give it
5: um listen um so uh, now you also have a, a giveaway for some of our listeners uh, we do
2: you do my publisher uh is uh, graciously offered to uh Give your listeners uh, an opportunity to get a discount on pre-orders. Um, so if they want to go to a, a link we're be providing uh, there on your website, uh, they can click through and get a twenty percent discount on pre-orders. Those will be signed, those pre-orders. So signed by, uh, me. signed by me. Okay. And uh, <laughs> so somebody, somebody along the line.
5: I'm just like, don't, don't let Dave sign them.
2: No. Uh, no. 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 no, no yeah. Uh, We'd have to pay them, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, (laughs) um, So, uh, yeah, those will be signed copies, uh, and uh, they get them at a 20% discount. It will be available as either a hardcover or trade paperback on their choice. Um, And uh, also, uh, we have 10 pre-orders we are uh, willing to give away here uh, to your listeners uh, in whatever – method you wanted to establish. I think you said the first 10 emails. Yeah. And we have uh, 10 ARCs uh, of Moonless Nocturne. ARC, uh, for people who may not know, is uh, an advanced review copy. Uh, So uh, we'll have uh, the pre-order winners, uh, the first 10 to get a free pre-order for uh, American Nocturne. And then uh, we have ARCs ready to go. So we'll have up to 10 ARCs. That uh, my publisher will mail out to um, whoever uh, is lucky enough to win on your uh, on your website. However, you want to set that up is fine with us. Um, we just want to you know do something nice for your listeners and tell them we appreciate uh, them tuning in.
5: Yeah, it's a good thing because they know I don't do anything nice for them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm I'm the mean one. So, wow, it's been a very <laughs> very conversation, and you are very. Um, very good speaker you have lots to say it's very interesting and we we learned a lot
2: here today you know well well thank you for saying so uh you know some might say i blow v8 but uh you know i like to think i i uh i just fill dead air you know no (laughs)
5: it's good we learned a lot we learned that hank likes to do uh a lot of drugs during his writing process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretends he's a house and he's a character and don't knock yeah. on the door. He might be dressed up like someone you read. You know, I, I'm so <laughs> drunk when I do them. I really don't
2: know what I'm, what I'm putting in my system. <laughs> yeah, I
5: see. And that's important. That's, a, you know, you're a good inspiration for young writers.
2: I try to be a model for, for the next dysfunctional generation. <laughs>
5: Boy, you're, I tell you, you are the one. <laughs> um, well, fantastic! We'll have all this up, and uh, we'll um, we'll have to follow up with this guy. Our our guest has been the great Hank Schwebel. Thanks Thank for you for having me. You.
2: To find out more about our show, guests or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com
4: has been completed
5: the end by George he's got it it is the end I'll
0: see you lying to me I'll be back this has been a production of something weird media
1: ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well